We've been learning from the Apostle Paul over the past few weeks how to be faithful ministers of God in these last days. And once again, for the sake of those of you who have not been here over the past few weeks, the term last days refers to the sum of church history, from the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem all the way to the end of the church age. From the incarnation, his first coming, to the return of Christ, his second coming. So the day in which we live and the day in which Paul and Timothy lived are the last days. We, like the Apostle Paul and his protege, live in a period of time in which the church faces many difficulties, not from outside, although there are a share of issues happening on the outside that confront the church, but the really big things that affect the church in a negative way and cause her harm are what come from inside the church. In the past two messages, I've mentioned a number of waves that have rolled over the church, causing great harm historically. And then last week, I mentioned several specific false doctrines that have negatively impacted the church just within the last 10 or 15 years. And it was these thoughts that, it was while these thoughts were kind of rolling around in my mind this past week that I saw a news story that serves as a particular example of how egregious false teaching finds its way into the church. In an article written by Charlene Aaron of CBN News, we learned about a new formal resolution in California, Resolution ACR 99, which calls upon, listen carefully, it calls upon all counselors, pastors, churches, and educators, and others to avoid, this is an important word because it's a word that Paul uses in a minute about these people. They are calling us to avoid supporting the historic Christian view of sexual ethics and publicly endorse the worldview of the LGBTQ community and all that goes with it. The really shocking thing about this resolution is not that the California Assembly passed it. I mean, anything that California does, we should expect them to do. But what's really shocking is that it was publicly supported by Dr. Kevin Minoya, the chaplain of Azusa Pacific University, which is a Christian, quote, Christian university. And, and he was also the former head of the National Association of Evangelicals. This bill made it through in part because of his influence. Beloved, this is what, exactly what Paul is talking about. The LGBTQ agenda is the latest wave of false teaching to roll over the church, and many professing Christians are carelessly and heedlessly embracing it. And these are people who, according to verse 5, have a form of godliness but deny its power, and who, according to verse 8, oppose the truth, men of corrupt mind and disqualified, listen carefully, disqualified regarding the faith. It doesn't matter what this man's redemption, his credentials are. As far as God is concerned, he is disqualified regarding the faith. And so Paul says of such people, verse 5, here's that word, avoid them. Avoid them, shun them, have nothing to do with them. As I said last week, don't go to their conferences, don't read their books, don't you know, listen to their blogs, their video blogs, or whatever else. Of course, 
The question that arises in any conversation like this is, how do Christian people and Christian ministers like Timothy remain faithful in such times? And that's a good question. And the Apostle Paul offers six instructions for how to be a faithful minister, which is just another way of saying how to be a faithful Christian, bearing God's truth, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ through his truth in these last days. How do we do that? Six instructions. And so by way of review, Paul's first instruction was that we should expect a general apostasy. Paul says, in the last days, difficult times will come. In other words, in the last days, there will be, there will be false teachings that roll through the church. In those days, men will not be lovers of God, but they will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, boastful, and everything else. He lists in that 18-point that, uh, um, uh, list of vices. The word of God and the spirit of God must be our focus. And so in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, what are we to do? We are to be faithful anyway. Be faithful anyway. Don't walk into ministry thinking that everybody's going to respond to the gospel. It's not that way. Uh, there are unique moves of the spirit that have happened in our country in the past. There are unique, perhaps unique moves of the spirit right now around the world in different parts of the world. But if that doesn't happen here this week, be faithful anyway. Expect a general apostasy. Why? Because God said it would happen, and it is happening. A second instruction Paul gives is remain alert for deceivers. That is, have your spiritual antenna up. Practice discernment. Be on the lookout for false teachers who take advantage of undiscerning people appealing to virtues such as love and unity and fairness and acceptance. These are all wonderful things. Equality. But they use these virtues to entice you into embracing ideas like the LGBTQ agenda. They're contrary, clearly contrary. I mean, this is, this is not nuance. This is clearly black and white, contrary to God's word. Deceivers will come. How do we respond? Be faithful anyway. The third instruction Paul offers is rest in a sovereign promise. Verse 9 says of the false teachers, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all. Time and truth go hand in hand. Give it enough time, the truth will come out and they will be exposed. In the meantime, as you labor for the lost... As you labor for your brothers and sisters in Christ, rest in Jesus' awesome declaration. Namely, I will build my church. And not even the gates of hell, not even death, it, gates of Hades, not hell, the gates of Hades, which is death, not even the gates of death will be able to subdue it. And the weighty responsibility of keeping Christ's church alive and healthy does not ultimately, partially, to be sure, in a secondary way, but not ultimately falls upon us. Jesus himself will finish what he started. So don't listen 
to the pundits and critics who will say, listen, unless we reinvent the church, unless we reinvent the message, and by the way, the churches that are reinventing the message um, are dying churches. All you have to do is drive down Camp Bowie and see that big hole in the ground over there across from Jason's Deli as evidence. Jesus himself, Jesus himself will finish building his church. And all we have to do, all we are called to do is be faithful to deliver the message and to be faithful to live in a manner that is consistent with that message, with the gospel. And so, as you go in the midst of these last days and you run into resistance, understand Jesus is still building his church. He's still building his church. Rest in that awesome promise and be faithful anyway. And this brings us to the fourth instruction. Number four, follow a worthy example. Follow a worthy example. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. I mean, as, as we come here to, to verse 10, I get the sense that while Paul has, has felt compelled to remind Timothy of the duties and dangers of being a faithful minister, he also senses a need to encourage Timothy. That's what this section's about. Paul senses a need right now to encourage Timothy for the faithfulness that Paul has consistently seen on display in his life. Remember, these are Paul's last words. And last words are meaningful. And Paul loved Timothy. He had personally discipled him. But you know it's easy when you're investing in someone's life to be excessively negative. And parents can be guilty of this. And we're so concerned that our children might take a misstep and kind of ruin things for themselves and maybe embarrass the parents, that they, they're vigilant to, to correct and warn. It's, it's as if they are constantly warning and, correctly, and correcting, but, but that can be exasperating to a child. It can be exasperating to a child if it is not accompanied by frequent balancing encouragement. In fact, Critique without heartfelt affirmation can lead to rebellion. And that's true not only of children, that's true of their parents as well. Um, it's not just an issue between parents and their children. It's also an issue about how husbands relate to their wives, how wives relate to their husbands, how employers re relate to their employees. But we see Paul here being very careful very careful to encourage, and he's putting it here in his very last letter. He knows he's going to die. He knows his time is short. He's not sure he's actually going to be able to see Timothy before his execution. And so he writes this word of encouragement. And this is intuitive for Paul. He has it in, in his uh, two letters to Timothy. He's given him a lot of instruction and correction. But now he faces the end and he realizes that this is the perfect opportunity to just get under Timothy. And so, after decrying the wickedness of apostate Christians and those who follow them, Paul says to Timothy, verse 10, he says, You, however, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, 
my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, Timothy, I, really, I realize that I've led you into a very difficult life of ministry. And the difficulties have come not only from the suffering brought on by the world and by the apostate Christians and by cranky church members, but you have also had to bear the weight of my constant instruction and frequent correction. Moreover, I have pushed you harder and further than you ever thought you could go. And I just want you to know, Timothy, that your constant faithfulness has not been lost on me. If there ever were a faithful disciple, the way Jesus wants a disciple to be faithful, you are him. You are faithful. It's as if Paul is preempting the welcome that Timothy will receive when he sees the Lord face to face for the first time. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul is saying, let me be the first to say, well done. And there's a lot more to do because I'm getting ready to leave. Be faithful. But know this, that I recognize your faithfulness. This is so important, beloved. Um, not just for the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Titus, he probably could have said and maybe did say something like this to Titus and others who were his disciples. We need to be careful about this ourselves. Um, Jesus once said in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher, Timothy was. Paul says, you have followed my teaching. That is, Timothy adopted Paul's love for scripture. That's the teaching. You have followed my teaching. You've embraced it. You've obeyed it. You have made it your own. Uh, and that implies a hunger for the word of God. In fact, we don't have to say that the word of God implies a hunger for the word of God. It clearly states that all who belong to him love his word. This is a clear mark of a true disciple. He loves the whole counsel of God. He doesn't only love the book of, the book of Philippians or 1 Corinthians 13 or the 23rd Psalm. We love every word of God because every word of God is true. And Timothy loved the Bible. He wanted to understand and know everything from chapter 1 of Genesis to chapter 22 of Revelation. I want it all. I want the whole counsel of God. I've, I've asked people who have visited our church, why, I, I always ask, why, why did you decide to visit here? Why, why did you decide to come and stay at least for a while? And I, and I love it when I hear this answer. If you're visiting, don't use this answer when you go to Calvary 101, I'll know. But um, I love it when people say, I just love the whole counsel of God. I want to hear the next verse and the next verse and the next verse and the next verse and the next verse. And just keep doing that until you get to Revelation and start over in Genesis. I don't know that I'll make it that far. <laughs> Timothy was hungry to know and understand all that God had to say. And every true disciple loves God's word. 
But it wasn't just doctrine that Timothy was committed to. He was also committed to learning how to live it. James says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. Paul was, was not only a model of the doctrine, the abstractions that needed to be, the propositions that needed to be understood, he also lived it. He lived it. And so in Paul, Paul kind of implies here of Timothy, you watched my life and have adopted my ways, that I, that I, the way I apply divine truth to practical, and here's the word in the text, conduct. The behavior, the way I speak, the way I live, the way I treat my enemies, the way I treat my friends, the way I pray, the way I study, my conduct. Secondly, my aim in life. That's my purpose. Timothy, you have adopted my purpose for life, and, and we have a purpose for life, right? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's our purpose. We got that from Peter. Timothy got it from Paul. It's become my purpose has become your purpose. My resolve has become your resolve. And thirdly, he says, my faith has become your faith. And my patience with people, my love for others, my steadfastness. This is, this is patience with circumstances. My my steadfastness, endurance in trial, and, and even my persecutions, my persecutions, my view of being persecuted is your view. You have adopted my view of persecution. And all the qualities that have been true of my life are now apparent in you. Well done, Timothy. Well done. What we see here in verse 10 is a verbal picture of true discipleship. When Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples, this is in part what he meant. We make disciples by preaching the gospel first and then showing new believers what it looks like and what it sounds like to follow Christ by being a faithful disciple of Jesus. Discipleship happens when we learn from others the eternal truth of the Bible. We receive Jesus Christ and then we start being taught and we eagerly learn what it means to live with godly speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, just to name a few. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, in my estimation, you have been a faithful disciple of Christ, a faithful follower of me. If you want to be a faithful minister, faithful Christian in these last days, then be careful whom you follow. Be careful whom you follow. Be careful who you pattern your life after. And, and you know what? That may mean that you don't pattern your life after your dad. It might mean that you don't pattern your life after your mom, although moms and dads ought to live a life that's worthy of following. The Christian home ought to be about discipleship. We ought to be training our kids. We ought to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, follow me because I'm following Christ. 
If you want to be a faithful minister in these last days, be careful how you follow. This is why all of us need to be careful to sit under the sound teaching of faithful men. Please, for your own, for your own spiritual safety, don't sit under a preacher who is constantly and only preaching on the things from the Bible that he wants to preach. You know what? Uh, in, in some respects, this is a negative passage of Scripture. It's all been about false teaching and apostates, and, and, uh, and sometimes I get a little concerned. You know, people are just, you know, are they, it's going to bother them that there's all this negativity. You know what? I don't care. It's the next verse. It's the next section. I didn't write this. This is God's message. I didn't choose to talk about false teachers and apostates again. This is Paul's message. This is the message of the Spirit for his churches. I don't know why he wants you to hear it, but he wants you to hear it. It's simply my job to deliver it. And so this is why it's so important that you're careful about who you spend time with. Find someone who is more mature in the Lord and ask them questions. Watch their life. You can do that around the playground after the service. I'm not suggesting you can be fully discipled outside the playground, but, <laughs> but standing around the playground can be an opportunity for discipleship, either you being discipled or discipling some other person in some way or in your small group. It was happening on the 4th of July party out at... Philip McKenzie's house, there was discipleship happening. I heard it, and at some level I participated in it. It's why it's important for you, it's important that you, you, you don't choose a college until you're sure there's a really good church nearby. Listen, if there's not a really good church nearby, then I know God's will for your life. You are not to go to that college. And here's why. Uh, you don't have a biblical mandate to get higher education, but you do have a very solid, clear mandate to remain a member of a local church. So by all means, leave this church to get an education. Just make sure you land in a good church that's going to hold you accountable and disciple you and help you. This is God's priority. This is one of the ways you determine God's will for your life. It matters what church you join, and it matters what seminary you go to. Listen, there are seminaries that are easier for our guys to get to, but we send them sometimes far away. Why? Because it's important who you follow. It's important who you're learning from. It's important that you carefully choose the person or the people who are going to be discipling you. The goal is always discipleship. It's always growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul says it. Speaking of himself, mentoring or discipling Timothy. Here's what he says, 2 Timothy. It's the same book, by the way, 2 Timothy 1, chapter 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is doctrine and practice. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And, and Philippians 3.17, I could have looked at any number of passages, but these two from Paul. 
Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Not just me. That's what he's saying. Not just me. Keep your eyes on me. Yes, study my life. Follow my life. Model yourself after my life because my life is modeled after Christ. But let it not be only me. Look for other men. Walk according to the example that you have in us. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There are other men. You know what? There's going to be one man or one woman who's going to, who's going to really be able to thoroughly train you in this area of your life. It may be weak in some other areas. And you meet another person and you get talking and you find out, wow, he's really strong in this other area of life. In walking in the spirit, seeking to be pleasing to the Lord in all things. And so by all means, use, literally, all means, all means, and all people in the church to grow, to cause you to grow. And so the fourth instruction is follow a worthy example. And by the way, and I didn't mention this in my notes, but um, I would encourage you to, to add to the list here, read Christian biography. Read Christian biography. This is why every year in January I do a biographical message. I want you to become familiar with these faithful men of the past, faithful men and women of the past, so that you will have yet another model of discipleship to follow. And so follow a worthy example. Number five, this is the fifth instruction of the Apostle Paul, embrace a sobering reality. You may have noticed that the last item in this list of how Timothy had become like Paul is in verse 11. My persecutions, he says. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy had become like Paul. Remember now, Paul is not saying you should. He's saying you already have. You already have all of these things that are true about me. I already see, I've seen them in your life, Timothy. I've seen them in all these years that we've been together. I've seen them in your life. And one of the things that I've seen in your life is just as I have been persecuted, so have you. Just as I have suffered, so have you. My persecutions, my suffering, like Paul, Timothy had suffered and would suffer persecutions. In fact, after Paul's death, some years later, the author of Hebrews makes an interesting statement about Timothy. It's the very last chapter of the book. He's deep into his final greetings. It's the second last verse of the book of Hebrews. And the author, whoever the author was, gives a bit of news to his Jewish brothers and sisters. He says this, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Timothy had been released. Uh, released from what? The hospital? No. From his job? Not likely. Um, the, the easiest interpretation, the most natural interpretation of this statement is that Timothy had been arrested. This is after Paul's death, maybe years after. Timothy had been arrested 
and imprisoned just like his mentor, Paul. And now he had been released, and the author of Hebrews wanted to say, our dear disciple of Paul, disciple of Christ, I know you've been concerned about him. You've been, no doubt been praying for him. Your prayers have been answered. Timothy has been released. But I, what I want you to see is that we have on biblical record that Timothy suffered. Paul had suffered much persecution. Specifically, he mentions his suffering in three places, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. They're right here. My persecutions, uh, verse 11, and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord has rescued me. In Antioch, the leading women of the city had used their influence to have Paul and Barnabas ejected from the town. In Iconium, Paul had fled because of a, a mob that was threatening to stone him. So you kind of see how this is escalating. And then in Lystra, Paul actually was stoned outside the city and left for dead. And, and we should note here that Timothy was from the area of Lystra. As a boy, he probably heard about Paul being stoned to death in virt what is virtually his hometown. And now here he was traveling with him. And Paul is saying to him, uh, not only have I suffered, but you have willingly suffered as well. And Paul is commending him. He's encouraging him. He's not just about uh, giving instructions and critique. Come on, Timothy, take a little wine for your belly. Your belly. Timothy, listen, stop being so timid. Stop being so timid. You gotta be bold. You gotta be, you gotta be strong. You gotta be courageous. I mean, if that's all you get from your mentor or from your parent or your spouse, you're gonna get tired of it. You're gonna get sick of it. And here is Paul saying, Timothy, I know your faithfulness. I've seen it. Here are specific ways where I've seen your faithfulness. The implication here is continue, press on. The Lord had rescued Paul from all of his persecutions, Paul says. But then Timothy reveals, a, Paul reveals to Timothy a sobering reality. And I really think he's not saying it to Timothy. He didn't have to say it to Timothy. He's saying it to us. We simply must embrace this reality if we're to be faithful ministers in these last days. And here it is, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, three words, will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. The word for persecution here means to be pressed, driven away, pursued, harassed, or hunted like a wild beast. Even so, as A.T. Robertson notes, Paul does not regard his experience as peculiar but only part of the price of loyal service to Christ. Let me say it again. Paul does not regard his experience as peculiar, but only part of the price of loyal service to Christ. If you're going to be faithful, if you're going to be loyal, you will be persecuted. Now that may 
not, not at all mean that you're going to be burned at the stake or stretched on the rack or taken to a labor camp. I, I know brothers who have family members, uh, specifically grandfathers, who were arrested for being Christians, for being pastors, taken off to Siberia. Uh, the places that I now go in Siberia are the places where those gulags once were and some still are where these faithful men lost their lives. If we had time, I could tell you some stories. John R. W. Stott helpfully observes that the godly, the godly, this is godly people, the godly arouse the antagonism of the worldly. Let me say that again. The godly arouse antagonism from the worldly. It has always been so. It was so for Christ, and he said it would be so for us. If you wonder where Jesus said that, you need only to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 15, where we read in verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant, let's see if you hear discipleship here. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Barnes writes, it is undoubtedly true at all times and will ever be that they who are devoted Christians, who live as the Savior did and who carry out his principles always, will experience some form of persecution. And let me just say, for those of you who are true believers, on the one hand, you're not looking forward to that. On the other hand, there's something in your heart that says, bring it on. Test my loyalty, prove it, strengthen it. Jesus is worth suffering for. We don't cause other people to suffer for what we believe, but we are willing to suffer for Christ. And then he offers this definition. This is helpful. The essence of persecution, he says, consists in subjecting a person to injury or disadvantage on account of his opinions, or we would say his faith. It is inflicting some injury on him, depriving him of some privilege or right, subjecting him to some disadvantage or placing him in a less favorable circumstance on account of his beliefs. These things may be expected in the best times and under the most favorable circumstances. And it is known that a large part of the history of the world in its relation to the church is nothing more than a history of persecution. And you know what is also true of the history of the church as it's faced persecution? This historic reality that the more persecution, the more the church grows. Amen. Just look at China right now. I mean, the 
persecution is ramping up. And, and believers are multiplying by the tens of thousands. And, and I think I know why. Two reasons. On a, on a spiritual level, the Holy Spirit is doing something miraculous and marvelous. On a human level, people are seeing that there are things worth dying for. There's something so valuable, so valuable, it's worth dying for. It's meaning, it's purpose, it's the weight of glory, it's the promise of eternal reward, it's knowing Christ, knowing God, being reconciled to God. It's worth dying for. Now, I realize that we need to be careful to avoid the temptation of falling into any kind of self-focused martyr complex in which every hint of ill treatment is said to be persecution. Don't toss that word around. I suspect that hardly any of us are being persecuted presently. On the other hand, I would suspect by this definition, most of us have been persecuted in ways that you might not even identify as persecution. Just people who hate your guts. <laughs> just an employer who kind of razzes you for your faith. You know what? Can I just say some, this to you? I, I don't know why I ask. I'm, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> if your employer does that, don't sue him. Love him. Give a reason for the hope that is in you in the midst of that difficult situation. Don't, act, don't suddenly begin acting like a world because they didn't appreciate you acting like a Christian. Paul, Paul's affirmation is a, it's as true in our day as it ever was. Some of you young people, let me just be real practical. Some of you young people will experience it when your peers discover that you are never going to get drunk with them. Or when they find out that you value your virginity for Christ's sake, hence your resolve to not be sexually active before marriage. And sexually active is just a euphemism for fornication. If you're not going to do that, especially if you go to a secular university, you're going to get pressure. You're going to get resistance. You tell people you're not going to the party or going to a Bible study or a ministry event, look, don't brace it. Don't brace yourself for it. Just understand that it's coming. Love those people anyway. And, and you may receive, and, and probably this is, this is the, the one that will probably get more of us than any other, when you don't fall in line with the LGBTQ agenda. You don't have to do anything really radical here to provoke persecution. All you have to do is live a faithful Christian life in the midst of a sinful, Christless world, and it will come. We're not asking for it. There's no virtue in hoping that you get persecuted. I remember my son one time uh, when him and, and uh, uh, Alex Long, Alex and Andy Kirk, um, started the uh, 4SG, which is our evangelism ministry downtown. They were teenagers when they started it. And one day they had this event planned, the two of them. They were going to go over to TCU campus, right, Texas Christian University, right? I mean, it fits right in with this passage. And they were going to hand out Bibles. 
So they came and they talked to Brent, and Brent got him a bunch of Bibles, and uh, something happened. There was some confusion about the time or whatever, and Andy ended up uh, at the meeting place. They were going to meet at like Taco Bueno or something, and, and Alex didn't show up. No problem. They were doing this all the time, and it was, I mean, they were always working together. But on that particular occasion, his partner didn't show up. And so Andy was telling me this, and I said, uh, so I'm so sorry, son. So what'd you do? He said, well, I went anyway. I said, well, good for you, son. Good for you. What happened? He said, well, I got out there, and I started handing out Bibles, and the administration came out, a representative of the administration came out and kicked me off campus. And I said, Oh, son, I'm so sorry. And he said, Dad, didn't you hear me? I got kicked off campus. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> that is what Paul's talking about, but let's just not get carried away with it. But you've got to appreciate the spirit, right? That youthful spirit of... I just want to be faithful to Jesus until I die. I just want to be faithful to him no matter what anybody says. Oh, that we had 400 people or even 100 people in our church who had that passion. I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. I'm going to follow his law regardless of who's around me. And if that results in some form of, quote, persecution... I won't consider it persecution. I'll just consider it blessing. The Apostle Paul, the Apostles, probably Paul and Timothy, uh, not Paul and Timothy, uh, uh, maybe John. Well, I'm getting my men mixed up. This is uh, probably Peter and John in the temple. And when they were arrested and let go, they were beaten. And when they came back to their brothers, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name Jesus' name. Let me offer an example from a recent article in case this all seems very abstract and ancient historical. An article in the Christian Post by John Stone Street and David Carlson. 24-year-old Jacqueline Hinkle is undoubtedly the best woman soccer left back in the world, but she didn't make the cut for the USA Women's World Cup team. Why? Because she declined to wear the mandatory gay pride jersey on the field. Hinkle explains, okay, so this is the girl, 24-year-old girl. All you, all you young ladies, listen up. She, she got the opportunity of a lifetime. And it was taken from her, probably. She says this, I just, felt, I just felt so convicted in my spirit that it wasn't my job to wear this jersey. I gave myself three days just to seek and pray and determine what God was asking me to do in this situation. And if I never get another national team call up again, that's just part of his plan, and that's okay. Maybe this is why I was meant to play soccer, to show other believers to be obedient. 24 years old. I get excited about 24-year-old men and women with that kind of zeal. She's not out to hurt anybody. She's not out to protest anyone. She's just living a Christian life. Well, her obedience did come at a price. The article goes on and says, playing for North Carolina Courage team in the National Women's Soccer League, Hinkle, 
is the recipient of boos and jeers every time she touches the ball. Be faithful anyway. I know for a fact that many of you have experienced your share of mistreatment because you were, you were resolved to live a life pleasing to the Lord, whether people appreciate it or not. And this is the common experience of all who not only believe in Jesus, but who live as he commanded us to live. Jaylene Hinkle's saga is only the most recent evidence that American Christians need to develop a theology of getting fired, or in her case, a theology of being kicked off the team. You don't do it purposefully. You're not trying to draw attention to yourself. You're not being bombastic and getting in people's faces and then calling it persecution when they don't like it. You're just loving people and living the Christian life. If you're going to be a faithful minister in this world, in these last days, we must embrace this sobering reality that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's an interesting phrase at the end. These are deceivers who at one time were themselves deceived but now they've bought into the deception to the degree that they are now the propagators, the promoters, the salesmen of the false teaching. And so the theme of Paul's fifth instruction is this. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Timothy, be faithful anyway. If you want to be a faithful minister in Christ in these last days, you're going to need to expect a general apostasy and remain alert for deceivers, and rest in the sovereign promise, and follow a worthy example, and embrace a sobering reality, and finally, you'll need to resolve to fulfill your foremost calling. What is your foremost calling? In the context of this discussion, Paul tells us in the next two verses, 14 and 15. He says this, But as for you, Continue. There's the verb. There's the verb. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. I think continue means after I'm gone. Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have faithfully believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a call to constant loyalty to the Lord and to his mission. To con continue means to remain. Timothy, you've been faithful. I want to encourage you. Appreciate your faithfulness. You're a model of faithfulness. But don't stop. Continue. Remain, persist, abide, persevere. In Philippians, Paul would say of himself that he was committed to press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, he, he wrote that letter from jail. If you're really committed to being faithful to your calling as a Christian in this world, it's going to cost you something. If you're going to live out loud 
your Christian life, then you will face persecution. Press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus anyway. It's going to cost you something. You need to count the cost and realize that it might be the ultimate cost. Probably not, but it'll cost you something and be okay with it. There are days when you will suffer. Don't quit. Continue in what you have learned. And the evidence that what you have learned and believed is true is rooted in those from whom you have learned them. This is not the only proof that the word of God is true. And maybe not even the strongest, but this is what Paul has for Timothy in this passage. When Timothy was a child, where did he learn the scriptures? At home. At home. He learned it from his grandmother. All you grandmothers out there, there is a purpose for your life if you have grandchildren. It's not just vacation and collecting shells. <laughs> you have the opportunity to influence your grandchildren for Christ. Lois did that for her granddaughters. And Eunice, his mother, moreover, he learned it from the Apostle Paul himself who, by the way, knew Jesus personally. What specifically did Timothy's grandmother and mother and the Apostle Paul teach him? They taught him not their own opinions, not their own religious mystical impressions. Oh, the foolishness that we see on TV and Internet, on people. You know, you, I, was, I was looking at one of these articles in a, you know, on a Christian website and a little video popped up and it was about a movie that was made on prayer recently and and somebody was interviewing the main character and it was a bunch of gobbledygook nonsense about prayer it's just disheartening these were professing believers um but that's not what lois and eunice and paul gave to timothy you know what he gave to them? He gave, they gave to Timothy, guess what? The Old Testament scriptures. Gave him the Old Testament. I mean, that's all there was. There was no New Testament. Now, Paul was writing it. And so were the other apostles. And notice what he says, the scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And by the way, one of the current false teachings sweeping through, maybe sweeping through is too strong a term, but certainly prevalent and well-known in the American church today is the teaching that says that evangelicals, believers need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Well, guess what? If it weren't for the Old Testament, there'd be no New Testament. And I'm not saying that, that one, be, one came in historical order relative to the other. I mean so much of the New Testament. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul was frequently building his arguments for salvation in Christ alone on the Old Testament. And so was Peter and the other apostles. Listen. Paul is telling us that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, had sufficient revelation in it to make us wise for salvation. Do you realize 
that there were Old Testament people that you will see in heaven. And they died before Jesus lived. How is that possible? Because the Old Testament is sufficient enough revelation to bring about people's salvation. Although I do think salvation, as we'll talk about next week, might be broader than merely being born again. But we'll see that next time. And by the way, to drive the point home, Paul, in the very next verse, reveals the absolute glory of the written word of God, the scriptures. And he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But if you want to hear that unpacked, you're going to have to come back <laughs> next week. The message of the sixth instruction is clear. Ministry in the last days will be difficult. Ministering the word of God will be difficult. He'll, when it, first thing he says in chapter 4, I mean, it's the, just three verses down. He's charging Timothy to preach the word. In the midst of hard times, in the midst of a, of a church that, that lacks discernment and is constantly being overwhelmed by the latest fads, religious fads and, and shallow ideas, and without enough discernment to compare what's being said with what the scriptures have said, in the middle of all of that, where you will probably face persecution, be faithful anyway. Continue in the things that you have learned. My friend, my question for you is this. Have you humbled yourself before God and his word in such a way that it has made you wise unto salvation? If not, I have good news for you. God himself is inviting you this day to drink of the deepest, most satisfying, meaningful, life-changing fountain of truth mankind has ever known. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and can I just submit to you that maybe the reason that that phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, hits you sideways, and you don't like it, it's because you have embraced what the world has said about it and you don't know what it is. Amen. Jesus Christ left his heavenly throne, became a real human being, and he could live in our place to satisfy God's requirement of righteousness and to die in our place because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Trust him. Fly to him. Believe in him. Throw yourself on his mercy, and you will find his grace.